Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. You couldn't ignore the war in Vietnam because the draft made it ever-present. It made it really front and center in our lives. Wake up every morning thinking about the war and the draft. They could take your life away from you and put you in, into an institution where you may be told to kill other human beings. It laid strong foundation for there being political organizing throughout the length and breadth of the United States. And what we say to our brothers around this country and around the world is a very simple word. That word is resist. It was the 1960s, and throughout the United States, opposition to the war in Vietnam was growing. The draft forced young men to make a choice about their own participation in the war, and many chose to resist. I'm Marie Cha. On today's Making Contact, we look back at the resistance to the draft and the war in Vietnam. What form did it take? And what does it look like to build a GI resistance today in the absence of an official draft? It is the policy of the United States to furnish assistance to support South Vietnam for as long as is required to bring communist aggression and terrorism under control. I grew up in Hawaii in the 50s at a time when fear of communism was pretty widespread. The aim of the communists is to establish control over all of Vietnam. And after that, over all of Southeast Asia. Any young man who was coming of age between 1965 and 1970 was affected by the draft. And every month the Pentagon would have a quota of so many men had to be drafted that month across the country. By 68, you had more than half a million young U.S. men in Vietnam fighting. So there was a constant demand to get men into the military. They were watching the high school for kids that were flunking out because they would immediately get drafted. They would immediately get put in the military. We started seeing stuff coming back from Vietnam and it didn't fit with the picture that we had been raised with. There were a couple of images that you could not avoid. One of them was the little girl with her skin burned running down the highway screaming, we saw lots of horrific footage of villages being bombed and people being shot and killed, bodies lined up on the ground. I remember the footage where American troops going into a village and a soldier pulled out his Zippo lighter and, and lit the thatch of some of the buildings in the village. Some of the same footage showed them interrogating Vietnamese, women, children, 
the elderly. And that was pretty horrific. I learned pretty early about the history of Vietnam. The communists, led by Ho Chi Minh, had led the resistance against the French colonialists for many years. There was a very clear moment when we decided to back the former colonial power in Vietnam. And that, you know, that, that's shocking and disappointing. At a conference in Geneva, an agreement has been reached. It divides Vietnam into north and south, turns over the north to the communists, and marks the end of French colonial rule. Eventually, after the French lost in 1954, the country was supposed to reunify uh, with national elections. They weren't held. Uh, President Eisenhower, John Foster Dulles, all understood. Majority, 80% or more Vietnamese supported Ho Chi Minh. That we would never win an honest election there had been promised in the 54 Geneva Accords. I felt that the U.S. had intervened basically on the wrong side of a civil war, on the side of one dictatorship after another. We were not defending democracy in Vietnam, which was the claim by the Johnson administration. To me, uh, it was for European, continued European control of a country that was all uh, people of color, all yellow, who I felt needed to be the determiners of their own destinies. All of a sudden, you start asking questions about the whole history that you've been taught. And there was this sense of incredible betrayal. It changed everything for me, really. It turned my world upside down. I was starting to question everything about my government, and I was not alone. Almost everyone I knew of my same age was having the same experience at the same time. The whole country was going through it. There were five options that, that everybody faced at that time. On the one hand, you could go into the military. Secondly, you could get a deferment. There were a number of different kinds of deferments. The medical deferment, you know, if you had medical problems, asthma, if you were too thin or too fat, um, and some people did amazing things to become either too thin or too fat. So there was a student deferment for undergraduate students and originally for graduate students. You could become a conscientious objector. There were some hoops that you had to jump through to demonstrate what we called CO status. If you were just against the war in Vietnam, that wasn't good enough to be a CO. Fourth option was to leave the country if you could, and many went to Canada, uh, some to Sweden. Uh, and then the fifth was you say no, and, and you go to prison. For Larry Gossett, resisting the draft was about more than opposing an unjust war. He saw the connections between U.S. aggression in Vietnam and the systems that propped up white supremacy and capitalism here in the United States. I was already like many, many thousands, maybe the majority of college students throughout the United States and did not want to fight in this colonial imperialist war where the U.S. was imposing its political will. And the rationale given to us as to why American soldiers need to go over there they said, we want to combat communism. And the determination I made is that, that uh, communism uh, was not evil, was not bad. Actually, uh, I could relate pretty well to it because my daddy was a janitor and a mailman, and he had six kids. And we had a very tough time of making it. And my mother's people were cotton pickers and sharecroppers. 
who worked from sun up to sundown picking cotton and they didn't get any money. Economic philosophy said the people that do the work should determine how the wealth that they create is used made ultimate sense to me. I wasn't scared of it like other Americans. Civil rights leader Martin Luther King leads the procession to the United Nations where he urges UN pressure to force the US to stop bombing North Vietnam. It was the late 60s and we were coming out of the civil rights movement. Uh, we were all very aware of uh, the issue of race. I think the Vietnam War was racialized. The terms used to refer to Vietnamese were not complimentary. Gook, slant eye, things of that sort. Human beings were reduced to, to, to single pejorative terms. There were other issues at stake then. There was the civil rights movement. There was anti-poverty. Movements that actually, I think, fed off of each other. But there were real significant issues that were big changes happening back then. The war was profoundly unfair and unjust on average everyday people as well as students. And it made them more receptive and sympathetic to the struggle of young African Americans. So the synergy of all those issues coming together helped build a mass movement. As the war went on, the protests became increasingly intense. What the Nixon administration figured out was they didn't need everybody who was born in a particular year. And so their strategy was to say, okay, maybe we only need 50%. September 29th. September 29th is one, five, one. In my sophomore year, the draft changed. They created a lottery with 365 days in it. Then you could be drafted whether you're in college or not. Nixon had put the lottery in, which was a very smart move in terms of defusing opposition because if you had a high draft number, you didn't have to worry about it. February the 11th. Back in the day, you knew when the lottery was gonna happen. And the only way to get, find out what the results were were to call the local radio station. So we called the radio station, one person after another, what's your birthday? And they, they got their number. And my turn, what's your birthday? And she gave her my birthday, she said, oh, 283. Oh, wait a minute. And, oh, no, no, sorry, that's a mistake, it's number 40. As the war went on, people began taking bolder actions and bigger risks. Mike Rotkin and Bruce Dancis were in New York City at the time. The war was so abhorrent, and the idea that there were women and children being killed every night, and it was in, in my name that they were dropping these bombs on people and, and destroying the country, and, and other American kids were being killed there and stuff. And I, I felt moral obligation to do something, to speak out, and to keep upping the ante. The idea of doing a mass draft card burning had been kicking around the movement for at least a, a year or two uh, at that point. But people weren't willing to do it yet, and I finally felt I can't wait any longer. If you decided you were going to burn your draft card, the assumption was you were going to jail. It certainly was going to mean you were sort of opting out of mainstream American society. We went and had a demonstration, and Bruce tore his draft card in four pieces, put it in an envelope, sealed it, put us right there in front of us at the demonstration with several hundred people, uh, put the stamp on the envelope, and stuck it in a mailbox. I was taking an action that 
was important to me personally. It seemed to me that what my conscience said, this is what I needed to do. But we were trying to build a mass movement of people to resist the draft and fill the courts and fill the prisons. And that was always my goal. We assumed that he was going to be maybe arrested right then, carted off, and that would be the last we saw them. That didn't happen. The people in my draft resistance group decided that, well, the best way to support me was to take the same action. And we targeted the April 15, 1967 spring mobilization, which was a big anti-war demonstration that was planned for New York City and then another one in San Francisco. I was indicted, however, just about a week before it to say, okay, you potential draft card burners, this is what's gonna happen to you. And, and sure enough, I was uh, indicted uh, five days before the draft card burning took place. So the, you cross this line from what seems like a kind of a moral statement, like it's, you started at a demonstration level, I'm going to speak up. There's a big leap between that and a federal felony that, you're, you, know, that you could be prosecuted in the, in the penalty for which is five years in jail and $10,000 fine. $10,000 seemed like a million. It was like that was beyond anybody's imagination how you would ever pay a $10,000 fine. It was a cloudy, overcast day. It wasn't a particularly nice day. We had a group of supporters, adult supporters, who were going to form a ring to keep the press away and let us do this up on a rock formation in Sheep Meadow in Central Park. But the, our line just collapsed. Uh, the press invaded us. I guess all the agents from the FBI, uh, the New York Red Squad invaded us. And we, people just started lighting up their uh, draft cards. It was sort of chaotic all over the place. In the middle of this, this guy in a Green Beret uniform comes walking into our ranks, and I thought he was a counter-protester, and then he takes out his draft card, and he burns his draft card. His name was Gary Rader. He was a U.S. Green Beret, a reservist, who had turned against the war, and he, was, he joined us in this dramatic action. At that moment, I thought, I'm going to jail. This is, I finally made this decision. I'm willing, that's how much I'm not willing to be part of the draft and support this war. At the time, we didn't know that, that the court system was in chaos. Courts were not sending people to jail. They were overcrowded. And that was one of our goals. Unfortunately, we didn't know it in the movement at the time. We did not think at the time understand that their strategy was to pick off key leaders and not to go after everybody that got out of the draft. I had my trial in November 68 and I was convicted. Uh, you know, I knew I'd be going to jail. I had been out on bail for several years, but eventually I did 19 and a half months in prison. The anti-war movement had a huge impact on the, on, on the outcome of the war. The opposition grew to the point where you had anti-war Congress essentially elected, and what the Congress did was to cut off funds to fight the war. Did it have an impact? Had a huge impact. Did it stop the war in Vietnam? No, I would say the Vietnamese had a lot more to do with that than we did. It was a country that was totally devastated. You can't drop more bombs than we ever dropped in World War II on one little country in Indochina without it having tremendous repercussions for generations. The draft, it was a powerful fuel for the anti-war movement. There's no question that the draft was the key element that made that anti-war movement as large and grow as quickly as it did. And they've learned that since then, that you cannot have conscription for an unpopular war without producing tremendous amount of dissent. Over the course of the war, 2.6 million people went to fight in Vietnam. More than 15 million were exempt or disqualified from military service, 
and over 200,000 officially defied the draft. The idea that I was going to be out there carrying a gun, so that wasn't really, that wasn't really the question. Again, it was this question of complicity. Is this something you want to be part of, even if you can survive it? And, uh, and I think that's, that's the question that I think people still need to ask. That was Bruce Cutler, Bruce Dances, Joseph Gerson, Larry Gossett, Pete Knutson, Mike Rotkin, Phil Stallman, and Sam Yamashita. They were among the millions of draft resistors who helped bring an end to the war in Vietnam. I'm Marie Cha, and you're listening to Making Contact. By 1973, resistance to the war had grown so much that the Secretary of Defense finally announced that no further draft orders would be issued. For a little over a decade, a registration system remained, so the government could reinstate the draft at any time. But by the mid-80s, the U.S. government gave up altogether. Today, the U.S. military is made up of those who enlist. And while technically the draft is over, the U.S. is still engaged in imperialist wars around the world. So what does it look like, in the absence of an official draft, to build resistance to war and empire among the very people charged with fighting it. Camilo Mejia is a former staff sergeant who refused to return to Iraq and is part of Iraq Veterans Against the War. He shared his experience and analysis at a roundtable in Chicago in 2007. One of the main forces in the military that are preventing service members from resisting is unit cohesion. You know, the military has really capitalized on that. And as I made my decision not to go back to Iraq because I had absolute political clarity that we had not justified an invasion against that country of Iraq. And um, coming from a political background of having grown up in Sandinista, Nicaragua, with both parents, having been incredibly involved with the uh, Sandinista struggle to overthrow Somoza, I was a very unlikely person to join the U.S. military. <laughs> or any military, for that matter. But my parents' objections to my joining the military were not very political, but were the type of opposition that you would expect from any parent. My mom said that you just don't have the heart of a soldier, you know, you, you like poetry and drama and literature. Are you crazy? You know, why are you going to join the military? And my dad's response was not political either, but it was that, you know, you're going to go to war and you're going to get killed. But I did have this background coming into the military. You know, I grew up in relative privilege in Nicaragua, and I'd never really questioned my place in the world. But the one thing that I was talking about before that is that when you find yourself in the military, and particularly when you find yourself in the context of war, it is very difficult to break down the barriers that they have erected around unit cohesion, camaraderie, the idea that we're in Iraq fighting for one another in spite of the politics of the war. And it was one of the hardest things that I had to deal with, even coming from this background and even as I realized that the war was a mistake and that we were brutalizing a country for profit and for imperialistic reasons, I still struggled immensely with the idea that I would not go back to my squad because I was a squad leader and because I had been in Iraq, in Ramadi, 
in intense combat situations. And when you're in that type of situation where your life really depends on other people who are fighting alongside yourself, and when you are given the responsibility to care for these people, and in, in my case, I really took that to heart, perhaps even to the extreme, because when people used to say to me, so you led a, an infantry squad into combat, I usually say, well, not really. When it was my show, when it was a squad mission, I actually led them away from combat. <laughs> Whenever we had missions and there were squad missions and we would go out on patrols, I would find a shade and, or we would go into the market and, and buy hookah pipes and things like that. <laughs> I didn't believe in the mission, so I didn't risk a fingernail for it or the fingernails of my soldiers, for that matter. But it really did take to heart the protection of the men in my unit. And that was one of the hardest things that I struggled with as I made my decision, which wasn't really a decision that I made to not go back to Iraq. I was so overwhelmed and so afraid and so terrified of being called a coward and being called a traitor, of being court-martialed and going to jail for many years. But it, it took a lot to overcome this fear. And I say that perhaps one of the biggest things in overcoming that fear was the fear of being rejected by my own peers, the people within my squad, the people who had become brothers to me. Even as I had this political and intellectual clarity about the war and the illegality and the, the, just how criminal it was, and we had done so many criminal things there. But this is the type of mentality that we're dealing with in the GI resistance movement. Another thing that I think is a huge challenge for everyone working with GI resistance. I remember when I was waiting for my court-martial in uh, Fort Stewart, Georgia, I would go to the food court in the base, and they had Fox News constantly, and there was no other channel being played on TV. And the only main newspaper that we got was the USA Today. Yeah. All the other newspapers were like local post newspapers. And lately, they've cracked down on even civilian sites like MySpace on the Internet and YouTube. You know, this is one of the ways that soldiers are using to vent and to express their frustration and to talk about their experiences in Iraq. And they're even going after that. And I think that from the Vietnam era, the media back then was not very uh, critical of the war. Yet, compared to the media that we have today, it was extremely critical. We're getting images of, like, for instance, the little girl running naked from napalm, and we're getting images of soldiers posting with dead Vietnamese soldiers. And we're getting, like, all these horrible images of death and destruction and demoralized GIs that we're not getting today. You know, we're not even able to see the flat-draped coffins coming back from Iraq. And we're not being able to experience the war, and we're not even being able, on the GI side of the house, we're not being able to experience the other side of that, the sector of the U.S. public that's actually standing up against the war. And I remember one thing that happened when I went to the SOA Watch protest back in 05, I believe. We went to stay at this hotel, and this is where I actually became an infantryman in Fort Benning, Georgia, not knowing that, you know, just around the corner from where I was training, that this had been the same place where some of them had been trained to oppress my fellow Nicaraguans and people all throughout Latin America. But I went to this action, and I stayed at the hotel, and the first people I saw there were GIs who were basically staying at the hotel, getting drunk, and going out there and doing crazy things like I'm sure we all have done. And uh, <laughs> they said to me, oh, you're here for the protest. You know, you guys are here against us. 
And I said, no, we're not against you. I said, I'm a soldier myself. And I, I pulled out my ID and I said, look, I became an infantryman here. You know, I went to the House of Pain. I was stationed at St. Hill. And I made that connection with them. But it's just amazing how twisted the information becomes from its source to when it gets to the soldiers. And that's another thing that we have to keep in mind, you know, when we approach GI resistance, that we're not being very effective in doing a whole lot of organizing within the bases. We're just beginning right now. And another thing that we need to keep in mind is that the GI resistance is not necessarily, it does not necessarily begin as being anti-war resistance. We have an incredible number of cases of resistance within the military that have nothing to do with the politics of the war, nothing to do with the whole WMD slash stockpiles of chemical weapon bullshit that we were fed going into the war, banned rape. And we have one very notorious case of that and one incredible example of resistance within the military, and that's Suzanne Swift. Basically what happened to her is something that's widespread within the military in various degrees, but what happened was that she was forced into a sexual relationship with one of her commanding non-commissioned officers because if she did not agree to have this sexual relationship with him, then she would be sent out on senseless, dangerous missions. And this is something that's happening a lot, so people are rebelling against that within the military. I was listening the other day to Democracy Now! and they had a young specialist who had come back from Iraq, and they were talking about how female soldiers were dying in Iraq because they would stop drinking water at noon in order to not have to pee at night because of the risk of being raped on their way to the latrine. So a lot of them were dying because of dehydration. You know, you're talking about 140 degree heat over there. And there's a reaction to all of that. It takes for us to build the bridges to get to these people and help them realize without hijacking their struggle and trying to repackage it into an anti-war political struggle, but to validate what they're going through and to, along the process, show them that this is the same struggle. It takes patience and it takes time for them to realize that this response to the same misogynist, racist, xenophobic, condescending, Western colonialist mentality that brings us to war in Iraq and other countries. And it takes time for us to realize that we have to be patient and we have to find the best way to build these bridges mm -hmm. if we're going to bring these people into the larger anti-imperialist movement. Mm -hmm. I want to close with some figures. And I want to say that when I first came back from Iraq, this was in October of '03. And as I contemplated not going back to Iraq, this is still within the first two weeks of my leave, the figure was 22 cases of AWOL's last desertion in the military. By the time I surrendered to the military, five months later, that number was 500. And then by the time I got out of jail in February of 05, that, that number was 5,500. And just last year, as reported by the USA Today, which was quoting Pentagon numbers, that, that number was over 8,000. And I was told the other day, I don't, I don't have a source, but I was told that the number is actually more like 9,000 people who have, for one reason or another, deserted the military. And to put that into perspective, that's like saying that an entire infantry division, you know, we're talking about division level, has been wiped out by not bombs or small as far as but by desertion. So we do have a resistance movement. We do have dissent within the ranks. For each one of us who goes public, there's probably a hundred who are resisting quietly 
We need to get to them and we need to find the ways to build bridges and to bring them into the larger anti-war movement to create that awareness, to educate politically and to learn from them so that we can end the war and so that we can move on to the next struggle. That was Camilo Mejia, former staff sergeant who refused to return to Iraq and member of Iraq Veterans Against the War. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. The voices you heard in the first half of the show came from the draft in the Vietnam generation, a film produced, edited, and directed by Beth Sanders. The speech by Camilo Mejia was recorded and edited by Charles Jenks. Special thanks to the Trap Rock Center for Peace and Justice and to Camilo for allowing us to share it. You can learn more about GI Resistance on our website, radioproject.org, where you can also check out past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast, and make a difference by supporting our work. If today's show raised questions for you, share it with a friend. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter, where our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Redman, Marie Cha, RJ Lozada, Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, Vera Tykolsker, and Sabine Blazon. I'm Marie Cha. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.